my guest today is Professor Robert Lufkin, who is a professor who was a professor of radiology at UCLA and uh, now at USC. Uh, he's a radiologist and a physician. And in his spare time, he has authored 13 books and 200 peer-reviewed articles. Welcome, Bob. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Gil. It's a real honor to be here on your program. I'm a fan of the show, so it's it's great to be here in person live. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So the topic of our conversation is your most recent book entitled Lies I Taught in Medical School and the Truths That Can Save Your Life. Um, that's pretty compelling. Uh, I don't know a lot about uh, medicine. I was at the pharmaceutical company, as I mentioned, uh, in the 90s uh, on the business side. So I, I sort of picked up by osmosis uh, some general idea. Uh, my daughter is in medical school, though. She is an OBGYN resident at Case Western. Um, and so we talk about medicine sometimes, you know, when she, when she comes home. Um, and so I was going to sort of step through the, the book and, and talk about the different chapters here. Um, I'm also interested, uh, Rob, that, um, you know, the policy side of this that we're going to talk about, that people understand uh, US is spending $4.5 trillion in healthcare spending per year uh, for 300 million people that we have. The, the other 8 billion is spending an additional, additional 4 trillion, so 8.5 trillion in, in, in uh, healthcare costs around the world. And a lot of the things we're going to talk about today have a significant effect, I would think, um, or, on this big pie of, of costs the world is carrying. So, so in, the, in the first chapter you say here, I did everything right and almost died anyway. Um, you say here, trusted science that could not be trusted. So, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, thanks, Gil. It's a it's a great question. I mean, the the title of the book is is sort of provocative. It's clickbaity, you know, lies I told in medical school. But it actually has a very very serious undertone, and that is that um, science, by its very nature, is continually changing. And to the extent that medicine is science based, the knowledge of medicine is continually changing. And what was uh, Famous, several famous experts in in uh, medicine have said that 50% of what we what we learn in medical school within five years will be either incorrect or just dead wrong. The problem is we don't know which half it is, but it underscores the fact that we need to constantly reevaluate what we thought was correct in in medicine and healthcare, and uh, and look closely at at these things that now turn out to be turn out to be lies. So um, in the beginning of the book, um, you mentioned I said I followed the rules and you know got sick anyway. And that that sort of goes back to when I grew up. Uh, my as it turns out, my mom was a dietitian, which is someone who specializes in nutrition and healthcare. And she worked in a hospital and worked on diets for people. And not surprisingly at home, we were we were uh, instructed to eat absolutely the best food 
as recommended by the federal government and the, the healthcare industry at the time, which was a low fat diet. We, we replaced our butter with margarine containing a lot of trans fats and seed oils. We, we took our, we, we cut the fat off any meat that we ate so we wouldn't have saturated fat. We avoided eggs because of the cholesterol we thought was bad. And, um, we ate low fat, uh, type of food, which meant that the fat was removed. And, you know, as we're, we're understanding now, when you remove one of the three macronutrients, fat, you generally, you have to replace it with something else. And uh, it's replaced with typically carbohydrates and refined sugars, which um, a lot of the book talks about is we're, we're paying the price for that now. So um, I thought I was I thought I was following all the rules and um, I followed these these healthcare recommendations and uh, it didn't quite work out very well for me. <laughs> yeah, so you know, uh, just like you, I'm also walking a metabolic syndrome model. Um, uh, not particularly bad yet, you know. I, I got my A1C up to six point three and I started lose weight and brought it down to 5.7, occasional bouts of gout, um, 130-90 blood pressure. So all these things that we typically see um, is prevalent in a very large population. Uh, I think something like 20% of the U.S. population currently. Yeah, there, well, there's a famous article that people like to quote that showed uh, they looked at a large population of people and they looked for any one of the metabolic syndrome signs, you know, which is abnormal HDL, abnormal triglycerides, uh, hypertension, weight, weight gain, et cetera. And they found in looking at this large population that 88% of Americans, adult Americans, had at least one of these abnormalities uh, that would classify them as being metabolically unhealthy. But if you you know, if you just look at the numbers now, you know, 50% of Americans have hypertension, which we call essential hypertension, which is, you know, people say, well, it's maybe the salt, but actually there, there's some very strong reasons of why people with metabolic dysfunction get hypertension. But uh, yeah, I, I had similar, I had similar diseases as, as you did. And I was, I was one of the, you know, metabolic, wounded people in this country. Yeah, and it's a very large population around the world. So as uh, as you know, as India and China uh, get wealthier, um, one part of getting wealthier is better or, or large amounts of food. Um, and so it's in some sense a ticking time bomb um, all around the world. And you know, that's a three billion people uh, in those two countries. So this is a this is a very important topic. So, so going into the sort of the the foundations of this, um, uh, you say here metabolism is just a body's way of digesting food. That is sort of the first lie that you quote here, um, and you talk about the three uh, sort of macronutrients here. So, take take me through the the three macronutrients. How do they sort of interact with each other, and how does the body actually process them? Okay, yeah, the the three macronutrients are we probably already heard of them, but they're fat, which contains oils and you know fat that we see on the food, 
And then uh, carbohydrates, which are um, both starches and, and sugars, and um, they're found in a lot of grains and that sort of thing. And then the third even group, vegetables, I think, right? even, vegetables. even vegetables have uh, carbohydrates. As it turns out, meat doesn't have much carbohydrate at all. It's one of, it's uh, uh, very little. And then the third group is protein. And it's interesting as, as we manipulate diets um, for these three food groups, um, we, we want to keep protein constant for most of them. In other words, so that the dials we can, we can change are we can increase our, our fat and we can decrease our carbohydrates or vice versa because each of these contributes to the total calories that a person consumes. And we want to keep the total calories more or less constant if we're, if we're changing these. Now, there may be a situation we want to lower the calories, but that's, that's a different discussion. But with, the, with these food groups, um, it's interesting that when we go to a low-fat diet, as I mentioned earlier, that becomes a high-carbohydrate diet. And when you go to a low-carbohydrate diet, that becomes a high-fat diet. So those are the, are the three main things, the three main uh, macronutrients. One thing's very important about these macronutrients are that protein is essential for our bodies, the, the amino acids are used to the building blocks of the cells to make proteins and, and uh, other compounds in our bodies. As it turns out, the fats are also essential. We need those to make cell membranes and, and hormones and a number of different things, the myelin in our brain. The carbohydrates, on the other hand, are curiously not required at all. And, and actually, they're, they're human uh, cultures that consume little or no carbohydrates. If you think uh, people who live in the far north where it's cold all the time, like the Inuit or, or what used to be called Eskimos, uh, those populations uh, survive for long periods of time in the ice eating, um, eating whale and walrus and seals, which are meat, but they don't contain much carbohydrate at all and not not much uh, plants grow. So that's how that's how we used to be, right? From an evolutionary perspective, when we came out of Africa, I would imagine we we ate mostly uh, protein, uh, maybe some fruit and nuts, and but generally speaking, there was no agriculture, there was no mass manufactured carbohydrate, and so 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 if you think about a sort of a three D space, so you have protein, fat, and carbohydrate in X, Y, and Z axis. But as you say, if you want to sort of get to some uh, calorie requirement, you could satisfy it with these three things in many, many different ways. Uh, but it's not the calorie optimization problem, right? Because the body processes these things very, very differently, I would imagine. That's right. Um, and it, it's sort of obvious when we think about it. If I have 500 calories of a candy bar versus 500 calories from an egg, uh, my body's going to treat those very differently. And it's based on the macronutrient compound. What controls uh, whether we gain weight or not is a hormone called insulin, which literally tells the body to uh, store fat. And it's, you may, your audience may have heard of it from diabetics and all, because it's a the main protein for both uh, the main hormone for both type one and type two diabetes. 
But the interesting thing about insulin is that if insulin is present in large amounts, you gain weight, almost independent of how much you eat. And on the other hand, if insulin's not present, like in a type 1 diabetic, you can eat all you want and you won't gain weight. So it's really fundamental. And it, the, there's, there's an idea that's still taught to this day in the medical system that, you know, if you want to lose weight, just eat less and exercise more. And that ignores the vital role, and in my opinion, the primary role that insulin plays in, in obesity and our nutrition. So of the three macronutrients, fat has very little effect on, uh, on insulin. So if you eat a fatty meal, the insulin stays low. So it, it's, it's interesting. If you eat fat, you don't store fat. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's burned up. If you eat protein, there's a small effect on insulin, but insulin is really designed to handle carbohydrates. So if you eat carbohydrates, the insulin spikes and that drives uh, fat accumulation. So you can eat the same number of calories. And if you eat a high insulin stimulating diet, you will gain weight. If you eat the same number of calories, but eat uh, macronutrients that don't stimulate insulin, you will either maintain your weight or lose weight. And this is still not being taught on a large scale. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So um, it's sort of counterintuitive. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, and I had a misunderstanding of this, uh, Rob. So I thought, you know, insulin is a miracle uh, of science that if you have type 2 diabetes, I mean, type 1 diabetics probably have to take insulin. They're, they're, they're no choice. There's no choice. But type two diabetics, you know, this is this is the way to go. My mom uh, has been taking insulin from age forty-two. She is now seventy-five, um, and um, it's uh, it, it's a different way of way of thinking, right? I mean, uh, once you are an insulin, it's almost addictive. Is it? I mean, I, I'm thinking about it differently. So, once you're an insulin as a type two diabetic, it's very difficult to get off it. I would imagine, right? Yeah, it really, um, this is a really good point. Let me just lay some groundwork there. So type 1 diabetics are uh, the type of diabetics whose pancreas, which is the organ that makes the insulin, doesn't function very well. And that's poorly understood why that is. It could be autoimmune or other problems that damage the pancreas. These people don't make insulin, and if they don't take external insulin, as you say, they will die. So this is life-saving, right? And that used to be the, the main kind of diabetes. That's called type 1 diabetes. Now, there's a new, an, a, a growing form of, type, of diabetes called type 2 diabetes, which when I was in medical school, it was called adult onset diabetes because we only saw it later on in life, whereas type 1 diabetes tends to occur at a very young age. Today, we sadly don't call it type, we don't call it adult onset diabetes anymore because type 2 diabetes now occurs so commonly in children. The other thing to know about type 2 diabetes is that um, it's now by far the most common type of diabetes. Over 90% of diabetics are type 2 diabetics, and that number is growing. Now, I used to think of type 2 diabetes as um, something that people either got 
or they didn't get, you know, maybe it was hereditary or something, but it was kind of like a, you know, like a switch, um, like your mom got it, you don't have it. But, you know, um, my thinking has changed on that. It was based on some interesting studies that have come out. And that one study was taking data from a large population of non-diabetic adults, places like the Framingham population or the NHANES data. And they looked at the marker that's used to diagnose type 2 diabetes. You mentioned it before, the HA1C level, which is just an indicator of glucose damage to the red blood cells. But if as it goes higher and higher, once you cross a threshold, you, you're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and then the doctor can prescribe things and they can bill you know, for treating you and everything. But before it crosses that threshold, you're not considered diabetic, even though you're going up towards it. When they looked at this very large population of non-diabetic adults over, over time, they saw a very interesting phenomenon. On average, the HA1C increased with aging. So the older you get, the HA1C keeps going more and more and more. So what does that mean? Well, you know, if you extrapolate, it means that Type 2 diabetes is not some, you know, weird random thing that you either get or you don't get, but it's rather, it's more like gray hair kind of. If I don't, if I live long enough and I don't die of something else, I am going to become a type 2 diabetic because my HA1C has been creeping up. There's something called insulin resistance that every, pretty much most people get as they get older. And insulin resistance just means that the body's not sensitive to insulin and that increases your HA1C. So, um, I, I, want to, I want to push on this. So there, there are two ways that could happen. One is the pancreas is not producing sufficient insulin, option number one. Option number two is it's producing sufficient insulin, but the body's not able to take it up, right? So, so in this large population of type 2 diabetics that seem to keep growing, what what is the uh, which factors more impactful? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, type one diabetes, as we talked about, is due to damage in the pancreas, autoimmune or other factors. It typically occurs young, very early in life, and these people require insulin to survive. Type two diabetes is the second case that you mentioned. In other words, the body's stops responding to insulin. So in order to store fat, the pancreas has to create more and more insulin so that your your levels of insulin keep getting higher and higher and higher. And your HA1C levels keep getting higher and higher and higher. And then at some point down the road, the pancreas is overwhelmed even in these type two diabetics. And at that point, it can't keep up with the demands for higher and higher insulin. And at that point, even type two diabetics, um, like your mom, um, can require insulin to, to survive. Now, in some cases, it's possible in type two diabetics to reverse. I mean, it's known that it's possible to reverse type two diabetes. There are companies like Verda do it with, um, with diet. And um, if you look at the carnivore diet, there are populations that eat only meat. And there are essentially no, no type 2 diabetics in that population because it reverses. They're, 
type two diabetes is driven by the macronutrients that drive insulin. And that's basically carbohydrates and refined fat, refined uh, uh, starches. Yeah, so I was just wondering, so since we find a high correlation uh, between age and incidence of type two diabetes, um, uh, is there sort of an efficiency of pancreas uh, ability to produce insulin over time? Or is it that it is producing insulin as expected? It just said the body is not able to use it. So you have this sort of vicious circle going on. Uh, it, it produces it, but it, it's not really being effective. So um, do we do we know what what might what might be more impactful in that context? Yes. Um... The what happens first is my pancreas, let's say, let's say me, my pancreas is normal. It produces a normal amount of insulin. My HA1C is normal. I'm healthy. I begin eating a lot of macronutrients. My diet shifts towards things that stimulate insulin. So I produce more insulin to process the macronutrients, basically carbohydrates that, that require insulin the body develops sort of a, a resistance to it. So the amount of insulin that worked a year ago doesn't quite work anymore. So my pancreas has to eat more. Then I consume more of these carbohydrates and starches and uh, my body becomes even more resistant to the insulin. And so my pancreas has to produce even more. Eventually, if this goes on long enough, my pancreas just can't keep up with it anymore. It's reaching the limits. And even though the pancreas works, it can't produce enough insulin to make up for the resistance. At that point, I either require insulin uh, to supplement the one that my body makes, or there's, there's a period in there where I can change my diet and remove the, the macronutrients that stimulate the insulin and that's a big ask for a lot of reasons for people. But, but if I do that, in many cases, I can lower the insulin requirements for my body, and then the pancreas is able to, to maintain it without exogenous insulin. So, so what happens to the excess insulin in the body? You know, suppose I have a very efficient pancreas. It is producing a lot of insulin, but the body can't use it. So what happens to the excess Insulin. Yeah, there, it's it's interesting. The um, the insulin resistance we get is to uh, certain effects of the insulin, particularly clearing the bloodstream of glucose. So glucose is harmful in the blood. That's why the insulin is there to clear it and lower the levels, right? And it works very effectively with that. And, but that's where the resistance builds up. One other function of the insulin we mentioned earlier was storing fat. As it turns out, that function of insulin works as well as it did before. So let's say I'm a type two diabetic, I have insulin resistance, my pancreas is producing more insulin, so I'm able to control my, my blood levels of insulin, but that higher level of insulin drives me to gain weight. And that's why type two diabetics are fat because of all the insulin. Type 1 diabetics are typically thin because they don't have enough insulin. But there, there are other, other effects of insulin, and that's why it's not such a good idea to just give type 2 diabetics insulin, start them on insulin, because there are other effects of insulin. Insulin is similar to a, um, 
another molecule called insulin-like growth factor that's been imp implicated in certain types of cancer. High levels of insulin are associated with cardiovascular disease. Diabetics die of heart attacks, you know, much yeah. greater. It's also associated with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is called type 3 diabetes because of the strong association with high levels of insulin and, and diabetes. And in the book, we talk about a master metabolic hormone called mTOR that drives most of the chronic diseases that determine our longevity and eventually will kill both you and I. Uh, and this, this hormone that drives the, or this molecule, the switch that drives these diseases is turned on by high insulin levels. So there are a lot of, re a lot of reasons to, um, you know, to take care of that, to reduce our insulin levels. Yeah, that's a, I, I want to touch on this. So uh, we might be underestimating the effect of metabolic syndrome on the population. You, you mentioned Alzheimer's, the, you mentioned uh, cardiovascular diseases that ultimately ends in cardiomyopathy or things like that, um, uh, other issues. So this is a disease that appears, at least on the surface, I'm not a physician, <laughs> at least on the surface, it affects a lot of, it influences a lot of diseases that you know exist, right? Exactly right. And that was sort of the wake-up call for me, even though I'd been a medical school professor my, my whole life teaching in medical school, teaching medical students and doctors. When I got these four metabolic diseases, which are similar to yours, I had gout, I had hypertension, uh, I had, uh, you know, it was basically similar things. I thought these were all separate diseases. You know, gout is your, your joint hurts and hypertension is high blood pressure. You know, that's simpler. Uh, and, and as I began to examine the most recent research on this, as, as you point out, there's an underlying mechanism that's driving all of them, and that's metabolic dysfunction. So the same metabolic abnormalities that drive hypertension also drove the gout, also drove the dyslipidemia. So, and, and what that means also is that the, the medicines, because I was prescribed medicines like you probably were for, for these things, they took care of the symptoms. They might lower my blood pressure a little bit, or they might make the pain go away on my gout, but they didn't do anything for the baseline metabolic disease that was continuing to move me farther on down the path towards other diseases. And so the, the great news is that the good news, bad news, there's no pill for metabolic health. These yeah. pills that I was getting for these particular chronic diseases were for the symptoms, but by changing lifestyle, and in particular nutrition, it's possible to walk back these metabolic changes. And for me, I was able to get off all of the diseases, all of the, all of the medications. When I went in to see my doctors, they go, I can't believe this. What did you do? You know, you don't need these medicines anymore. So it's, it's, it's something that we can all do. Yeah, so I don't know if this is a lie in your book, uh, Rob. So when I had my first attack of gout, you know, my physician told me, cut out the red meat. And- They what, uh, they what? Uh, cut out the red meat, red, red meat, you know. Um, and that is still appears to be the sort of the initial prescription. You know, you, you cut out all protein. <laughs> That's yep. exactly the wrong thing to do, right? I mean, in this context. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of misinformation on gout, uh, a lot of misinformation on uric acid, which is the molecule in gout and its relationship to fructose, which is a, a molecule in sugar and carbohydrates and its relationship to uh, nitric oxide, which which protects our blood vessels. And these are all related. So the as it turns out, sugar consumption uh, drives urate levels, which drive uh, lower nitric oxide levels, which damage our blood vessels and cause them to be less reactive and, and drive the hypertension. One of the, when I changed my diet, one of the first things I noticed was I became lightheaded. And, and then I read the literature, a lot of people, when they go on this type of diet and they restrict the macronutrients that drive insulin and drive urate, then they, their blood pressure drops. And mine was dropping to a, would have been a normal range, but I was on blood pressure medicine. So I, I stopped the medicines and then I, I didn't get lightheaded anymore, but it's a common symptom with people who do this type of diet when they're on blood pressure medicines, even in a couple of weeks, they notice it. That's how fast the, the hypertension can be reversed in many cases. Yeah, so, you know, um, I've been sort of systematically trying to get back to normal. Um, and so I don't eat breakfast, I don't eat lunch. And around 3 p.m., 4 p.m., I get a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, and I talk a little bit about the process there, what the body's going through. Yeah, I mean, um, intermittent fasting, what you're describing, or, or narrowing your eating window is something that's it's available to all of us. It doesn't cost anything. It actually saves money, you know, if you don't pay for lunch or breakfast. Yeah. It also uh, eliminates, I, I do it myself. I have one meal a day with my kids at dinner. It eliminates calorie counting. I. I can eat pretty much anything I want. It's one meal, you know. I mean, I, I feel up, but but the the point is that even if we don't change what we eat, just by narrowing the eating window, we can have a significant improvement in our health. I mean, I used to eat as my mom, the dietitian, told me, you know, eat many small meals throughout the day. You know, have a have a good breakfast and then a snack and then a lunch and then a snack and then a dinner and a snack. And this is sadly still taught to many people. Um, there, there are some reasons we go into in the book on why this is unhealthy, because this constant food, it, it drives inflammation in the gut, food in the gut no matter what kind of food drives inflammation and the gut is constantly active and their problems are with that. The, the food stimulates insulin um, and mTOR. So you're, you're constantly turning, turning things on, you're turning down such things as repair and autophagy. So there are many, many reasons for narrowing the, the eating window. Um, the book's not a religious book, but if you if you look at spiritual leaders from around the world over time, there's not many things they agree on. But there's one thing that all spiritual disciplines agree on, and that is fasting is good for your health. <laughs> and so even even just even just narrowing the eating window, it's not like going without food for 40 days, but just narrowing the eating window. For me, I. 
I started just not eating after dinner. And then like you, I, I skipped breakfast and I skipped lunch. And um, it's, it's very important. It's very helpful for many reasons. Like, like you, I, I feel energized. I, I work out having fasted in the morning. I do, I exercise, I do anything. I find my mind's a lot clearer. I can, I can just tell the, tell the difference. So technically what's the process the body is going through there? So it is, you know, sort of solved uh, in some sense with carbohydrates. It's not getting anything from carbohydrates. So it's going back and looking at other things it can burn for energy, right, in the body? Is that Correct. What yeah, there are really two choices for energy in our body. We, we can either burn glucose or when glucose isn't present, let's say in our, our earlier days, we're hunter-gatherers and we we go for a long period without eating, we, we get by fine as long as we drink water. And the way we survive is that our body has evolved to burn fat. And we all have stores of fat in our body that can be burned. And this is when we burn fat, we we create something called ketones. And this is, we get in a state of what's called ketosis, not to be confused with ketoacidosis, which is a diabetic pathology. Ketosis, though, is instead is a healthy form of um, of energy metabolism that's a replacement for glucose metabolism. And some people even believe that ketosis is sort of the healthy normal state for humans that evolved for 100,000 years before the agricultural revolution, which you alluded yeah. to when a lot of things changed and we began eating all the time. The, the worst innovation in human history. That's right. If you believe, yeah, Jared Diamond wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, he said that. And Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens and many other books, both both make the observation that agriculture, which I had always thought of was, you know, the key to human evolution with, you know, it helped us with culture and cities and everything. They believe it was the worst thing that happened to humanity for, for all sorts of reasons. But one is for our health. So, so I want to go to another chapter here. Um, so there is no treatment for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, and so non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease, so if you have, uh, so, so, so NAFLD, uh, we had a couple of uh, researchers from other medical schools talking about NAFLD and the, you know, sort of the contemporary treatments for it. Um, so what's the status quo? So if I'm so first of all, how how does one diagnose NAFLD? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing because when I went to medical school, which is before 1980, there was no such thing as NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. If somebody had fatty liver disease, it was due to alcohol or viral infections. Um, in 1980, thereabouts, that all changed to the point where today. The, the single most, the most common cause of liver failure and liver transplants is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Wow. So okay. what happened in the 1980s and, and what causes it? Well, the, the liver is a detoxification organ. It detoxifies alcohol. That's why alcohol goes to the liver to be detoxified and too much alcohol causes fatty liver degeneration. There's one other molecule that's also detoxified by the liver, and that's something called fructose. It's, if, unlike glucose, which is metabolized throughout the body, the only part of our body that handles fructose is really the liver. 
and it's metabolized there in many of the same ways as alcohol. And too much fructose causes fatty replacement and these fatty changes in the liver. And researchers have shown, uh, like Robert Lustig at UCSF, that in a matter of weeks' time, you can stop, you can, you can change a diet. They took kids and they they just, they substituted glucose for fructose in their diets. In other words, they didn't even change the amount of carbohydrates. They didn't even change the calories. All they did was got rid of the fructose and put something else in there, glucose. And they were able to reverse fatty liver disease in a matter of weeks that was seen on radiology imaging studies, as well as their lab tests. So um, it, it, it's really an interesting disease. And um, there's, there's, ways to change it with our lifestyle. So, so um, where does fructose come from for typical, you know, person in the population? Yeah, uh, it, well, fructose gets its name from fruit, from fructose. Uh, so it's, it's a, fructose is a very sweet sugar. It, it, um, it's sweeter than glucose. We perceive it as very sweet. So it evolved to attract us to eat fruits um, in the fall, you know, prior to the winter and, and animals evolved to gorge themselves on fructose and, or on fruit, which contain both fructose and, and glucose. The interesting thing about fructose though, is glucose stimulates insulin very strongly. Fructose has very little effect on insulin. So if I eat a bunch of fructose, my insulin doesn't spike. And for a while, the American Diabetic Association recommended fructose to diabetics because they can, they could, they thought they could safely eat it and not spike their glucose, which is true. The problem, though, is that fructose drives insulin resistance and drives inflammation in the liver, drives fatty liver disease, drives hypertension, and all these other things we talk about. So there are a lot of reasons to be careful on the amount of fructose that that we that we eat. So if I eat any kind of fruit, I am basically consuming fructose. Yeah, well, actually, it's not just fruit. Um, table sugar, which is known as sucrose, oh, yeah. is yeah. a is has two sugar molecules. It has glucose and fructose. So even eating table sugar, half of that will be fructose. But in 1980, something happened was the, the government um, subsidizes junk food. That's one reason why junk food is so cheap in America and elsewhere. There are government subsidies that artificially that pay farmers to grow corn, wheat, and and other other types of uh, grains, basically that are used to produce junk food. But one was developed in the 1980s called high fructose corn syrup uh, from corn. Obviously, it contains a little bit more fructose than, than table sugar does. But the advantage was, unlike table sugar or cane sugar, which was used in junk food prior to that, it would crystallize and, and be crunchy and it didn't have a great shelf life. But high fructose corn syrup, one was cheaper than cane sugar because it was subsidized from the corn, but it also had a strong, long shelf life and you could, you could add it to liquid beverages. So in the 1980s, all the soda manufacturers, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, stopped using cane sugar and they began using high fructose corn syrup. And high fructose corn syrup began being used across the board ubiquitously in, in junk foods. So we get we get a lot of it in, in our junk foods beginning in the 1980s, which is 
you know, suspiciously about the same time that this weird liver disease suddenly appeared <laughs> and now is the main liver disease we get. Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of corn. So uh, I just sort of peripherally touch on this. So we have big pharma, big food, uh, as you have called it, um, and big healthcare. And all of these are companies, uh, and companies are profit-maximizing entities. I was in one of them. And we don't typically think about societal utility. <laughs> uh, we go to conferences and talk about it, but in the grand scheme of things, the boards and the, and the C-level execs objective is to maximize shareholder value. And so there's a confusion here, I think. Um, general public should not be looking to these companies to say these, these guys are doing, you know, should be looking after me. Nobody is looking after anybody. Um, companies are maximizing profits. That is, that is what they are here for. And so, so, so what do you think about it? I mean, that, that, there's a bit of a confusion here, I think. Yeah, there in, in our healthcare system and, and all the industries you mentioned, there are a number of pernicious financial incentives, both conscious and unconscious, that that drive things the way they are. So if you go to a hospital with a program to um, let's say you, you want to start a new program to reverse type two diabetes. So they have a big population, a growing population of type two diabetics. And you say, you know what? We have a program that that will basically, by changing their diet and their nutrition, we will reverse the type two diabetes in this population. And the hospital says, well, what will it cost? And they'll say, well, any money that the program costs will make up for in savings and the cost of insulin and metformin and, and other drugs like that. And the hospital says, oh, well, that's that's a great idea, but it, at some level, you know, the hospital survives on, you know, all sorts of things, not just not just uh, metformin and insulin and all sorts of things. What's the number one uh, cause for a surgical procedure for any type of amputation in the in the United States today? I have no type, clue. Type two diabetes. So, yeah, it's it, the answer is the same, type 2 diabetics. What's the number one cause of renal failure and dialysis in America today? It's type 2 diabetics. That's why um, there are a number of uh, dialysis companies who support the American Diabetic Association who recommends their type 2 diabetics consume sugar but just increase the insulin they take to, quote, cover the sugar, which is problematic for the reasons we already hit on, rather than recommending going to a diet without the macronutrients that drive insulin. So absolutely, there are a number of uh, pernicious incentives. Blindness, the number one cause of blindness is related to diabetic retinopathy. So diabetes is a, makes a lot of money for the healthcare system. Yeah, so, so, so I want to take a sort of a policy detour here quickly. So. We have this quadrant, patient, manufacturer, provider, and payer. They all have different incentives. Uh, the patient doesn't have a lot of information, so they you know, essentially rely on the other three corners of this quadrant. And uh, as a taxpayer in the US, um, a big part of my taxes are going into healthcare spending. 
uh, we spent $4.5 trillion, as we, as we mentioned before. A big part of it is related to hyper, uh, metabolic diseases in general, hypertension, type 2 diabetes being the prominent ones. And so there is sort of an optimization problem here, right? So that um, I'm, I'm quite surprised, I have to say, that payers should see this, actually, you know? Uh, so suppose, you know, I am a payer, some insurance company, and I say, you know, you go check your A1C and I'll pay for it every quarter. You go to CVS, check your A1C, I'll pay for it. That would have been minuscule compared to what's going to happen later <laughs> to that to that patient, right? But they they yeah. come. Yeah, let's do no that. that you're you hit on exactly the right thing. I mean, it, it's funny. Some there's a quote that uh, why is it that Americans eat as if their healthcare were free? You know, <laughs> but, but but to your point. Where, where, what's the, where's the hope in all of this? I mean, the hospitals, they're, it's difficult for them to change because of the financial incentives that are in place, the pharmaceutical companies, but the insurers who take on the risk, they can stay, see an upside if the program is constructed properly. And I'm working with a number of insurance companies now to try and develop innovative programs where, where, Type 2 diabetes is reversed based on lifestyle changes. And then that cost savings goes back to the insurance company, goes back to the, the, the uh, patient, and it propagates through the system. Rather than asking the hospital to do it, which, you know, they're going to be hurting their bottom line if they get rid of all the diabetics. They'll have to close the operating rooms, you know, <laughs> for some, <laughs> some of the operating rooms. <laughs> So how about the CMS? I mean, uh, you would imagine, you know, Medicare and Medicaid is a it's a big component of of this 4.5 trillion, and as CMS maybe being a government entity should have an incentive to optimize this, right? So what's happening there? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of stagnation a lot of lobbying a lot of uh, a lot of diverse interests in this i'm you know i'm not an expert in this at all but all you have to do is look to current events today um, this is not a political conversation but the current president and i think the past president also spoke about this too so it's it's bipartisan but they're finally asking the pharmaceutical companies if they want to get drugs into the Medicare program, they can't charge 10 times what they car charge for the same drug in Canada or France or something else. So we're beginning to see some of that. But just the fact that it's taken so long to even get there uh, shows just the influence that that all these special interests have, all these different lobbies and, and uh, groups that are influencing policymakers. So it's it's hard to get a change through CMS or through any of these other organizations for that reason, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, th this is what this book is all about, right? So prevention, prevention is the best, best way to do anything, right? So rather than treating something, let's try to prevent it. And yeah, yeah. Go ahead, okay. sorry. Yeah. No, so so I was going to touch on another, you know. So uh, another, well, if uh, you're going to leave, if you're going to leave yeah. prevention, let me just say one thing. Yeah. One other thing that just blew me away was that um, the the treatments that we get, like I mentioned, with some of the drugs, really don't address the underlying causes, and prevention yeah. does. And 
a striking example of that that you know statistically is likely to kill both you and me and most most the the highest number of people in this country is that's cardiovascular disease and that's as we know that's narrowing of the blood vessels over time and the the treatment of choice when it occurs in the in the heart blood vessels is is a stent is put in there and it actually opens up the blood vessel again and everybody's you know they they have a heart attack and they get a stent and they go wow you know i dodged that bullet and i'm feeling great what they don't realize is the stent doesn't do anything to their heart disease other than keep that one vessel open you know for a little bit longer and that's why stents don't improve your more more your your long term survival or anything that's because the underlying disease which is driven by metabolic conditions and smoking and environmental factors, but largely metabolic functions isn't even addressed. So people go in, they get their stent, they feel, they think they're great, but meanwhile, the disease continues to progress. So unless they begin to take these preventative measures and these basic lifestyle functions at a metabolic level, these chronic diseases are going to continue to progress, even though we manage to treat the symptoms uh, with medicines and surgery. Yeah. So, and and then sort of noise in the airwaves too. So another lie that you talk about here is statins are a good choice to prevent heart disease. And I know a little bit about this because I was in a large pharmaceutical company who has a $15 billion uh, drug. And, um, from research, it appears to be a correlation rather than a causation, but potentially good correlation. Sometimes correlations are good too. Um, but I don't know if we have enough evidence this is actually preventing heart disease. Well, so what's your thinking here? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't say that my, my claim is that it, the lie isn't that that statins work. They do work. Um, statistically, it's been proven across many, many studies to lower the inc- or they're associated with lower incidence of heart heart events. And you know there are a number of ways to slice that up. The problem is it's a really small number. And you know in the book we talk about relative risk versus absolute risk and yeah. how that confuses doctors and patients. But the 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 absolute risk is very small. It's about one percent improvement in. But this, hey, I'll take that. It's the number one cause of death, right? Why wouldn't I take a statin, even for a one percent improvement? Well, yeah. the problem is, in addition to exaggerating the benefits, the pharmaceutical companies and the doctors who've been taught by the pharmaceutical companies also minimize the side effects of statins. So they're a lot of side effects that are reported and unreported uh, muscle, even brain effects and on memory and everything. So why not take a statin? Um, the benefits probably outweighed by the, by the side effects. And the, the effects that it works on is probably not by lowering LDL. Half of people go to with a heart attack have a normal LDL. It's probably an anti-inflammatory effect. But if you look at the, the, the hazard ratios, in other words, the benefit of lowering LDL with statin or using a statin at all compared with changing your metabolic profile, in other words, your triglycerides, your HDL, your HA1C factors, other things like smoking, air pollution, other things like that, they're orders of magnitude greater than the effect that the statin has. 
The problem is the statin is easy to prescribe. Uh, it's the one thing a doctor can do in a seven minute visit, teaching someone to change their lifestyle and their eating habits and all the things we've been talking about for an hour is impossible to do in seven minutes. It's really easy to pop a pill. Um, so, so would you recommend, uh, Rob, so the triglycerides, um, it, it's a different animal. And we have now, now some agents, um, you know, very high concentration of fish oil um, uh, and, and things like that. So would you recommend, I mean, we, we're not providing any medical advice here, but I'm, I'm just trying to get to sort of the, the conceptual thing. So uh, LDL seems very noisy in terms of, uh, heart attack. Uh, but triglycerides, do we have a better fee for, for that? Reducing it is potentially useful? Yeah, there's some, there's some great articles in the, in the book and elsewhere where I reference that show that the HDL to triglyceride ratio, which is a marker for metabolic disease, it's actually tied to insulin levels, it's tied to our metabolic health, that has about you know 10 times the risk factor or the hazard ratio that simple LDL has. So um, there's a, a lot of cardiovascular benefit of addressing triglycerides and HDLs. And as it turns out, those can be addressed with um, these lifestyle changes that we're talking about, changing our carbohydrate intake and metabolism also affects tends to affect the HDL and uh, triglyceride as well as people get their metabolic health in order. Yeah, so another chapter here, most cancers caused by accumulated DNA damage. This, this was my, um, my thinking too, before I, I read part of this. Uh, uh, and I, I had an inkling for this. So, uh, you know, we see um, metabolic disease causing inflammation, inflammation, is sort of a marker uh, for, for cancer. So, so what's, what's the sort of the latest thinking here? Yeah, well, this is, um, people still, this is, this is what I'm talking about is controversial, it's cutting edge, it's, you know, the average person and the average physician, if you say what causes uh, cancer, it's accumulated DNA damage over time. And um, this, I think the real nail in the coffin for this study was the Human Genome Project. You know, in the early 2000s, we sequenced the human, the normal human genome. Then there was tremendous hope for for genetics as a cure for cancer. In other words, cancer is just accumulated DNA mutations. So the government had another giant project called the Human Tan Cancer. Uh, human tumor registry where cancers were sequenced, the DNA from literally the cancer. So all these mutations could be cataloged. And then the simple matter of finding each mutation, developing a drug for it, and bingo, game over for cancer. Right. Well, what happened, we don't hear much about it because there was no fanfare after this, this uh, was completed, was because it didn't work. What, what happened was they found that there were a lot of mutations in cancers, but they were completely different. They were inconsistent. And there, there are a few oncogenes that were identified, but by far and large, tumors had a very heterogeneous mutation population. And even within tumors, within the same person, within the same location would have different mutations. So 
it, it appears there's it's not just accumulation of standard mutation genes that caused it, but but other things. And then the other argument, there are a number of arguments in the book, but that um, that um, cancer is not just a breakdown of mutations and things wearing out, but it's actually a highly choreographed, orchestrated pattern that, you know, cancers are different, but they all share certain properties. They're hypercellular growth and then metastases, vascular invasion. And it's unlikely that by random mutations, you would just all they would develop the same pattern. And instead, there's an atavistic theory there that's put forward that um, cancer is actually a return to an earlier cellular program in cells that that basically triggers cell growth and metastasis and vascular invasion and all in a nutshell there. Is mTOR implicated in this? Yeah, it's, well, it's very interesting. mTOR is in, implicated in all the metabolic diseases. It's implicated, as we'll see, in all the all the findings of aging, the phenotypes of aging, gray hair, wrinkles, baldness, uh, hearing loss, periodontal disease, even menopause, it's implicated in that. There's animal and in some cases, human evidence to show it. It's also implicated all the major chronic diseases, cancer, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease. Um, so in, in cancer, mTOR, when it's turned on, causes cellular proliferation and growth. Yeah. And in the case of cancer, that's the sine qua non for cancer growth. So not surprisingly, drugs that suppress mTOR, particularly a drug called rapamycin, is FDA approved not only for cardiovascular disease to coat stents with, but also for uh, cancer, uh, for several types of cancer, such as metastatic renal cell cancer, which is the number one type of uh, kidney cancer that you get, and many other cancers. So it's fascinating that, that mTOR at a basic metabolic level affects every one of these metabolic diseases and even our longevity itself. So I want to finish up with uh, Alzheimer's. Um, so we have had a lot of, I remember in the, in the mid-90s, we had a drug called Aricept. I don't know if you, if you looked into that. Um, and most pharmaceutical companies have gotten out of this research area, uh, probably because they all failed. <laughs> uh, it, it's obviously a complex, very complex disease. And I saw recently somebody was on the on the program a year ago, and he called it type type three diabetes, and he was suggesting we could actually uh, provide insulin into the brain to to cure Alzheimer's. Uh, so, so talk a bit about what's the metabolic uh, metabolic syndrome connection here to mental disease. Yeah, uh, well, the, the association is that people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, have a much greater rate of uh, Alzheimer's disease. And I, I get what the person was saying about injecting insulin, because insulin in many by many medical professionals is viewed as a cure for type 2 diabetes. <laughs> but as we've discussed, it's actually the worst thing you can do. Um, for for these until the pancreas actually fails and then you and then you need it but um, it's it's generally not a bad thing and it's not a good thing to put it in the brain but um, the drivers of insulin that drive 
cellular hypertrophy also drives some of the some of the factors of Alzheimer's disease. So there's evidence that mTOR overactivation and repression with rapamycin can actually improve Alzheimer's disease. And there's a clinical trial with humans now with Alzheimer's disease. Some of these dietary things can have dramatic effects with Alzheimer's disease. There's Heather Sanderson. I don't know if she's been on your program. She's a protege of, of uh, Dale Bredesen. She has uh, nursing homes for Alzheimer's patients, but she does something that no one else does in her nursing homes is she actually sends the patient home at the end uh, to go back to their lives. Whereas most people with Alzheimer's disease, it's a one-way trip. Uh, talking to her recently, she puts all her patients on a low insulin diet, basically a ketogenic diet. And I was asking her, you know, why do you do that for your all your Alzheimer's patients? Does it does it work? And she goes, no, it doesn't work for everybody, but some of the people are really, the results are dramatic. Well, I said, how do you know it works? He goes, well, one man came in and um, when he's in ketosis, in other words, when he's observing the ketogenic diet, he recognizes his grandchildren and gives them a hugs and knows their names and everything. But as soon as he starts eating junk food or you know, carbohydrates and goes out of ketosis, then the kids walk in the room. He doesn't even recognize them. He just walks out of the room. Yeah, so I know that you have to go, uh, Rob, so we are running out of time, but why don't we have a clinical clinical trial on this? I mean, um, it's a fast-growing disease. Uh, we have a lot of, lot of people suffering from it. Why don't we have a clinical trial of some sort where, you know, we have a, a control group and then we have we have a group that is you know uh, fed much less carbohydrate in their diet. I mean, couldn't we find something in the yeah? There's a I'll, I'll point you to Dale Bredesen. He's a, a colleague of mine uh, from UCLA and UCSF. He's written a book called The End of Alzheimer's and a number of other books. And Heather Sandinson is a protege of his and. He looks at Alzheimer's as a multifactorial disease, which I think is the correct way, rather than a disease of, you know, neurofibrillary tangles and and uh, this sort of thing. They certainly have those, but I think it's a downstream effect. So he he some for some patients it will be a glucose metabolism problem, and when they go on a ketogenic diet, that will improve them. And there have been some dramatic results. And he's he's actually published prospective controlled trials on that. For other people, it may be toxins like mercury or lead. It may be uh, other things. And in some cases, we just don't know. But the problem is just lumping them all together and treating them with drugs that don't really work um, is a big mistake. And we need to revisit Alzheimer's disease and really try some of these newer cutting edge treatments. So this, this has been great, Rob. So this, this is a really fascinating book. I learned a lot from it. Uh, I didn't read the whole thing, but uh, from what I read, I learned a lot from it. So uh, if folks want to sort of download a sample of this book, uh, where, where can they go? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, anybody who wants a, a sample, the first chapter is available on, for free on my website for your audience. Uh, uh, either in an audio form or a, or a PDF form. If you just go to my, my website, which is Robert Lufkin, L-U-F is in Frank, K-I-N, M-D.com, and then put slash chapter afterwards, uh, then you'll be able to download it. 
So if you send me that link, uh, Robert, I, I, when I publish the episode, I'll put that in there as well. Okay. Um, so th there's more here but that we didn't get to. Perhaps uh, maybe at a later time, we can do a second session and, and dig uh, deeper into it. That would be great. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you, Gil. And thanks, thanks for all the great work you're doing with this program. Thank you.